got a little one that wants to go to kids' church. Now's their chance to do that. We are starting our new summer preaching series. I like to do a whole big long thing throughout the entire summer so we kind of know what we're doing as we move through. If you, uh, if you look at the, uh, at the screen, it is spelled correctly on the screen. We are wandering the desert. If you look at your bulletin, it says wandering the desert, like we're figuring out what's going on, but that's the wrong, wrong spelling of wandering. That's my fault because if you know me, you know I can't spell worth anything. And I made the graphic and sent it to TJ and I looked at it and I went, that's not right. I've never seen the right one. So it is wandering the desert. As we figure out what we are doing as we are, are kind of in a spiritually dry season of our life and, and it feels like sometimes God is a, a thousand miles away, how do we handle life like that? How do we continue to... Uh, to do the right things? How do we uh, continue to kind of see his vision and, and keep a right focus? And so we're going to use the Israelites as our example. We're going to see them uh, wandering the desert and maybe answer some of the questions that kind of come up as we kind of understand this thing. Like Because we, we, we like to we like to point the finger at the Israelites and we like to, on our side of history, because we're so together and we're so appropriate and we're so uh, smart and intelligent. We look at them and say, how could you, right? How could you not understand what God's doing for you? How could you turn on your back on a God that's been working miracles in your life? How could you not understand what he's doing in this very moment? What, what's wrong with you, right? And over and over and again, we, we, see them, we see them complain and we see them grumble and we see them uh, kind of forget all that God has done and and uh, and we run in these situations and 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 we kind of just see on the backside that that they're acting absolutely ridiculous but rarely do we ever stop and recognize that we do the same thing that we see God do something incredible and the first time we get into a spiritually dry area where maybe God feels like he's uh, 40 years are 400 miles away from us, we, we begin to forget the faithfulness of God. We begin to forget all the incredible things that he's done, and we begin to kind of put him in this box of, oh, he really doesn't care about us anymore. When's the last time you had a spiritually dry season? Some of you might be saying, listen, I'm in the middle of it, like I am wandering the desert as we speak. Some of you may say, listen, I remember that time in my life when it was really, really hard, and it felt like uh, nothing I did was ever really easy, and that felt like God didn't really even care. What do you do in those moments? Do you, do you buckle down and dig your heels in and say, okay, God, I am here, and I'm going to go through this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my way through this, and this is all going to be okay on the backside? Do you, do you really dive into Bible study and dive into the Word and really kind of try to feed yourself that direction? Do you, do you really like fast and pray and really seek the face of God? Or do you do what I believe most of us do and kind of shrug our shoulders and say, I, I really don't know what's next. Maybe even, maybe even sometimes we have thoughts about going back to like old life habits and old life things that we've done. Maybe even uh, replace God with something else or even worse, complain about the fact that God, quote unquote, doesn't really care about us in our time of need. I think we have a lot of things in common with the Israelites. And so this, uh, this summer we're going to look at them and we're going to look at how uh, they, they wanted to go back to their old life. Now, sometimes they replaced God. They complained about their own comfort. They wanted to be their own bosses. They, stood, they stared fear in the eye and they confused the next steps and ultimately they had to deal with the consequences of their sin. We'll ask questions like, why did they do this? Why did they do this? And what can we learn 
from them. And then we'll take those same questions and we'll turn them around and we'll ask ourselves the same questions. Why did I act like that? And what can I learn from my own mistakes? I believe that when we get into this, I think it's going to be really, really good. I'm excited about this summer and, and, and this whole series. Now, um, let's get some context first, okay? So let's, let's figure out where we are and how we got there. Let's all, we can always go back to Abraham because that's just an easy guy to go back to. You know, Father Abraham and many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, right? We all know that song. Uh, and so Abraham had Isaac. Remember, Isaac was the almost sacrifice on, on the mountain. You guys remember that story? Isaac then had uh, Esau and Jacob, and Esau was the firstborn and was supposed to get all the good stuff, right? Esau was supposed to do, uh, he was supposed to get the blessing, he was supposed to get the birthright. Esau, the Bible says, was a hairy guy, and he was a man of the outdoors, and a lot of you guys, you guys kind of identify with Esau, hairy and outdoors, right? And so, like, there was Esau, but then Jacob, the Bible describes Jacob as a man who who was about the house, and, and we read that and think, well, he was this kind of namby-pamby guy. He wasn't. It's just he was more comfortable at home, and there's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of people here who are just comfortable at home. And, and the Bible says that his mom loved Jacob more than he loved, she loved Esau, but uh, that Isaac liked Esau the best. Well, then one thing led to the next. Jacob was a deceiver, and he, he tricked his brother out of the blessing. He tricked his brother out of the birthright. It was a really expensive bowl of stew, okay, if y'all remember your Old Testament story of that. And so we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob through the course of his life, uh, encounters an angel. He wrestles with this angel. It's a really cool story in Genesis. You should read this. And remember, the angel touches Jacob's socket and pops it out of socket. And he changes his name to Israel. Hence, the Israelites. If the angel didn't change his name to Israel, they'd be called the Jacobites, okay? And so we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is now called Israel. And Jacob has 12 boys, right? And we know these as the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, because that's his name. And so the 12 tribes of those, he has one favorite, his son, his favorite son is Joseph, right? Now Joseph kind of plays up the fact that he's the favorite, doesn't do himself any favors with that, and he kind of hangs it over his brother's heads, and you guys remember this story that at one point they were just going to kill him. But then they got smart, and they were like, well, why, we're not going to get anything if we kill him. Let's sell him. And so they sold him into slavery, and after a lot of different things, and I'm fast-forwarding the story a whole lot, uh, Finally, we see that Joseph is in Egypt, and he's working for uh, the, essentially the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, and, and he is in the position to essentially save the entire nation of Egypt because of the coming famine. And he stores up all this stuff, and he kind of is in charge of divvying out the food, and guess who comes walking up needing food? It's his brothers who sold him years and years and years ago. It's an incredible story. And one thing leads to that, reconciliation, tears and tugs and all this kind of stuff. And he invites his family to come to Egypt to live with him because Egypt is taken care of. Everybody else is going to starve. And so we have, when the Bible says that at the end of, uh, the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, there's a little verse that says that there's about 70 of them that come and live in Egypt. And so we have the, the 70 Israelites that are living in Egypt and then about, we fast forward that story from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, there's about 400 years that are lapsed. And in that 400-year time span, the Israelites have exploded. There's over a million of them now, and they are all in slavery to the Egyptians. 
And you guys know this story. Along finally comes Moses, the little baby in the basket. And then he gets kind of adopted and raised into the Pharaoh's family. And then he has a burning bush experience. Uh, and then he sings his theme song, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Ooh, y'all remember that from the early 90s? And so he'd sing that song. And uh, eventually after the plagues and after all the other stuff, the Israelites finally get to leave. Okay? And they are leaving uh, the, the Egypt and, and the, the enslavement of Egypt and all the bad things that happened there. They experienced the plagues, but none of them really affected them. And then Pharaoh finally says, go, and they go, and they finally remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire leading them a day and night. And then uh, they get to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea's parts, and they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then the, the Egyptian army who's chasing after them gets all swept up, and now they are, they're kind of... They're on the other side. And they're like, okay, we know that God is on our side. We understand that everything is good. If you're reading uh, the Exodus story, that is all happening in the book of Exodus, hence the name of Exodus, okay? And so if you read Exodus, Exodus tells you a lot of the events that are about the exit from Egypt and a little bit of the events that are in the desert. If you want to know what happened in the desert, you really need to be, read Numbers, okay? The book of Numbers is just a couple of books over from uh, Exodus, and it tells you uh, a lot about the desert experience and a little bit about censuses and uh, tabernacle rules and um, some, some furniture rules and placement of how, how they're going to set up the tabernacle, okay? Uh, the book of Numbers is bookended on the front end and on the back end with a census. That's why they call it numbers okay and so they're counting everybody and see how many people are there and how many people are left at the end of it all and so when we're when we're reading through this over the next few weeks what we're going to see is we're going to see a couple of stories out of exodus we're going to read a couple of the majority of the rest of the stories are going to be out of numbers and so my challenge to you over this summer is to read those two books you can do it quickly you can read through them very quick if you get to the numbers and you don't want to really know how many people are in the tribe of Levi, then skip the numbers and just keep going down to the good meaty parts, okay? It's all important, don't get me wrong, but read through those because this is going to give you a great understanding of what the Israelites did over and over and over again when they were in the desert after God had continued to prove himself faithful over and over and over again. So if you've got your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16, okay? And so in Exodus chapter 16, I'm going to give you, we, we've already done the, the exit, we've already done all the plagues, we've already crossed the Red Sea, right? Uh, and they've, in Exodus chapter 15, they've come to some, some bitter water, and, and the, it was basically just water they couldn't drink. And, and you guys who know that story remember that uh, God told Moses to throw a piece of wood in the water, and that that wood would make the water sweet, and God allowed that to happen, and God essentially sweetened the water enough to where they could drink it. Uh, and so they've, they've had kind of an easy go so far. Everything's kind of fallen in place. Yeah, there was that water incident, but that really wasn't major because immediately as soon as they needed water, God made water available, drinking, good drinking water available. And so here we are in Exodus chapter 16, and we know that God is, is very much on their side. I mean, these miracles that have happened, these are not miracles that happened years ago. These are not miracles that happened generations ago. These are in our very recent past. I mean, we just walked through on dry ground. We just saw the frogs and the locusts and the, the Nile River and all these things happened through the plagues. And then we get to Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. It says this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam 
and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Let me give you this real fast, okay? If you, uh, I don't have a map. I should have put a map on the screen. I don't have a map. Uh, if you think about where Egypt is, okay, and so I'm going to face this direction because I'm visual, and Egypt is here, and there's the Sinai Peninsula, okay? And so they're coming up, and if you look at the Sinai Peninsula on the west-hand side of that is the, the wilderness. It'll be called the wilderness of sin. Uh, the Bible just calls it the desert of sin. And there's a couple of different uh, thoughts of the, the route that the, that the Israelites took in the Exodus, uh, some say it's a northern route. Some say it's a southern route. I believe it's probably more the southern route. And so if you kind of come out of Egypt and you turn south, going down toward the end of the Sinai Peninsula, that's the direction that they're heading, okay? Uh, there's a few different places for where they think Mount Sinai is, but I believe it's kind of down in that southern, uh, southeastern corner of the Sinai Peninsula, okay? So they're heading down there. This is just giving you real geographical evidence that the Bible knows what it's talking about. On the 15th day of the second month after they came out of Egypt. Timestamp. In the desert, listen, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Are you kidding? We just, we just entered our very first crisis of belief, the very first thing of any major proportion, and the Israelites automatically wished that they were back in Egypt? That doesn't make any sense. After all that they've witnessed and after all that they've seen and after all that God has done for them, they're, they're wishing for Egypt. Even worse, I believe, they're romanticizing Egypt. Oh, we had pots of meat and we could eat everything that we wanted. I, do you really think that they had pots of meat and could eat every? What were they in Egypt? They were slaves, right? They, they, they ate what they were given to eat. They were abused. They were mistreated. And in the early chapters of Exodus, we read, if you know the story, there's a part where Pharaoh essentially doubles their workload, but, but doesn't, uh, doesn't lessen the requirement of bricks that had to be made. And so they had to not only they had to make all the bricks, but they also had to gather all the materials to make the bricks when before the, the Egyptians were given them the materials to do it. And so these, these are people who were, who were mistreated and whipped and beaten on a very regular basis, and, and they're, they're living in conditions that I could only describe as not Sandals Resort, Cairo, Egypt, right? This is not a good place that they want to be. But they're saying, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. We had, we had all the food we wanted. Sounds like a teenager. We had all the food we wanted. We could do whatever we wanted to do. We could eat as much as we wanted to eat. We read this and we think, what in the world are they thinking? How could they, how could they even go back to that, that, that frame of mind? But I believe that we do this too. That we are firsthand witnesses of God's miracles. I've seen people be healed of sicknesses. Marriages repaired, 
financial situations being turned around, prodigal children returning back home, husbands getting their lives right and actually leading their family, and families getting plugged in and making what's most important, most important, and then something happens. Something out of the blue, something out of left field. Maybe it's a sickness or, or maybe it's a poor decision or maybe it's just a straight-out attack from the enemy. And everything just kind of pauses. And, and, and the people who have just seen all this incredible stuff happen are standing, I believe, in the middle of the desert. And all of a sudden, the things that were important are not important anymore. And all the things where we had our guards up our guards begin to be lowered. And the next thing we know, I believe, we're wandering the desert. It's like this mental and, I believe, spiritual switch gets flipped. And they begin to remember what their old life was like. But it's not a real representation of it. It's a romanticized version. All the fun quote-unquote, that they used to have, all the stuff that they used to do, all the excitement that accompanied that life and that lifestyle. But you know what we never remember? We never remember the pain that it caused. We never remember the relationships that are ruined. We never remember the stress that it caused and the fear and the worry and the slavery and the bondage to sin and sinful actions. Oh, we remember the fun of getting drunk with our buddies, right? And we remember the thrill of the innocent flirting, and we remember the carefree nature of doing whatever and however we wanted to live our life. But we, te- we seem to forget, and we choose not to remember those nights when we come home so sloppy drunk and our kids ask us what's wrong. Or the look on our spouse's face when they find out that a line has been crossed. Or maybe even the embarrassment of having to live with the decisions that we've made. Just like the Israelites, I believe when we're when our spiritual season, our spiritual dry season is in full force, and we 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 think that I can just go back and do what I used to do, but we forget just how bad it was. Incredibly, the New Testament speaks to this very issue. If you've got your, put, put a piece of paper or put your finger in Exodus, then flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul uh, writing the church at Corinth. Corinth is a, um, it's a bad place, okay? It's the only way to say it. Um, uh, Corinth had um, a lot of indiscretions, a lot of things that were happening. If, if you said something about a Corinthian girl, you were, you were referencing a prostitute. And so this is, this is not a place, this is like, Vegas and, uh, and I don't know, Cancun and Amsterdam all mixed together, okay? And so this is not a good place to be. And Paul's writing the church, it's in Corinth, and he says this, it's really cool, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Did you catch that? Jesus died for everyone. One died for all, but we died too. Therefore, all died. What do we die to? I believe we died to that old life. That thing that we seem to want to run back to, we died to that. Verse 15, he died for all 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, there's the reason for that death. And that reason is him. For all that he did for us, the sacrifice, not just coming to earth, but for dying, the criminal's death, we don't live for ourselves any longer. We don't live for that old life. We don't live for that stuff that we've already died to. We live for him, even when we're in the desert. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard not no one from a worldly point of view. Though we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He's saying, listen, this is not a horizontal issue. This is an eternal issue. It's vertical. Everything we do, every decision we make, every action and reaction we have, it's not just flat. It's not just earthly. It's heavenly. And then verse 17, this is one that we all know. Therefore, because of all that, because of him dying for us and us dying to our old life and because everything that we do now is vertical and not horizontal, therefore, if anyone's in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Because of his death and our death to sin, we are all brand new. The old life, the old way of thinking, that romanticized version of what we used to do is gone. The Bible says the old has gone. Everybody say gone. Gone. It's gone. The new has come. How do you run back to something that's gone? How do, you, how do you go back and experience something that's gone? I wanted to have, I, I texted my dad this week, and uh, there's a picture, and I, he couldn't send it. He sent me like five other pictures, but he didn't send me the one that I wanted. When mom and dad got married, they had matching 65 and 66 Mustangs, cherry red. Dad's was a fastback, uh, mom's was just a straight, uh, regular Mustang, and there's a picture of them in the backyard of our house growing up in Missouri, and they're, the, the, the Mustangs are nose to nose, and dad's leaning against his, and mom's leaning against hers, and dad had his creepy mustache and his long hair, and mom had her like high-waisted pants on, which is like a new, th- this back, it's the same thing that kids are wearing now, and her like stringy black hair that was cut right down the middle of her head, right? And, and like this, this picture like screams 1973, okay? It's just what it is. And, and they sold, they sold those two cars. Dad sent me a picture of him and mom leaned against his, and he sent me another picture of his, uh, his um, oh gosh, it was his SS, um, it was just, it was incredible. And I'm like, Dad, you had, you had three cars that I would, I, would, I would shoot you for right now. And he's like, I know, I know. And then he sent me a picture of his 59 Ford. And I was just like, Dad, stop it, right? And so there's this picture. And they're leaned up against it. And they sold it. And you know what they bought? A family car. Right, they brought it like a 74 Thunderbird, like this big, long, like this thing's as long as the stage is. And when you rode in it, if you've ever ridden in one of those, it just kind of does this down the highway. It just kind of floats. You could run over 15 people in that car and never even know it, right? And so, like, they sold these incredible cars for this baby blue, like, ugh, thing, right? Here's what I never saw my dad do. All the times growing up, I've seen that picture. It's, it was in a photo album. It wasn't even like out. Like I would have blown it up. It would have been behind my desk. It would have been like this is what I used to have. I never saw my dad go to the garage 
and like pull up a, a chair and sit in it and close his imaginary door and boom, start his imaginary car and like vroom, vroom around the garage and the memory of something that was gone. If he did that, then I would assume the 70s were worse than him than I thought they were. But I would also think, Dad, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Listen, church, when we go back to that old life that's gone, we're just as ridiculous. We're just as imaginary. And we're just as sad. Because that old life is gone. And and God's saying, I... I'm here to do something new. The old is gone and the new has come. So here's the hook. What if, what if the time that we spent romanticizing our old life when, we, when we're wandering the desert, what if we spent that same time preparing and dreaming about what God could do in our new life. Instead of thinking about all the the not-so-good old days, what if we spent that time really seeking the face of God and asking Him to do something incredible in the new, in the right now? So since our example is the Israelites, let's go back to Exodus chapter 16. I think this is great. We see them grumbling to Moses and Aaron, if we'd have just died when we were in Egypt, we had all this food, we could have done whatever we wanted to, but now you've brought us out to the desert to starve us to death. The very next verse, verse 4, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, quote, this is incredible, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And over the next couple of verses, he gives them instructions. And you guys know this. This is manna. This is you go and collect an omer a day and not an, anymore. And you got to eat it all that day or it's going to go bad. But on the Sabbath or on the Saturday or the, the day before the Sabbath, the Friday, you, you collect twice as much and you can eat it on the Sabbath. Verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, quote, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. And when you read that, everybody, we kind of take a step back going, oh, no, here it comes. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord, your God. Did you notice anything? Did he get mad at them? Did he scold them? If you know your Old Testament history, and we're going to read some of this, there's multiple instances where God basically looks at Moses and says, get out of the way, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm just going to kill them all. They're just driving me nuts. I can't do this anymore. And Moses would go back to God and say, please don't do that. You know, let's think about the long-term goal here. And God would be like, you're right. You know, it's this incredible little dialogue between the two of them. But interesting here, he doesn't do that. What's incredible is that he provides for them. In this crisis of belief, in this moment of, of desert wandering, he doesn't even address the old life issue. He never said, Egypt? What are you talking about, Egypt? He never even addresses that. Because the old is gone. And he's worried about the new. 
Church, if you hear nothing else, hear this, and this is really my last point. God's desire is not for you to dream about what happened in your old life, but to dream about all that He could do in your new one. God's desire is not for you to dream about all that used to happen in your old life, but about for you to dream about what He could do in this new one. Listen, when we're in our desert and it feels like God's a thousand miles away and it feels like maybe it's been a long time since you've really even worshipped or you've really even experienced Him or you've really even felt His presence in your life, it's very easy to want to go back like the Israelites. Oh, just take me back to Egypt. And God says, don't do that because that's gone. Focus on what I can do right. And that, that takes effort, and that takes a lot of self-discipline. Kind of stay focused on what's supposed to happen. I put down in my notes, it's time to stop running back to our old and running headlong into our new. Uh, I love the example of the Israelites, because here's what, here's what they're going to end up doing. Time and time again, we're going to see them. They want to be their own boss. Question God's leadership. Look at fear. Look at, look at wanting to go back. And time and time again, God steps in and he handles the situation. And listen, sometimes it's pretty hard. This time, they got off pretty easy. This time, in the middle of their crisis, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you something brand new. And so this morning, maybe... For us who are here, maybe we can just take a second and just recognize where we are. If, if we are in the desert, listen, may, you may be in your oasis, right? You may be in this incredible place with God and everything's going really well and you feel very connected and very deep and, and very real with Him right now. That's, that's great and I want you to feel that way. But sometimes those feelings don't last a long time. And... And sooner or later, you may find yourself in the desert again. Where it feels like everything's just hard. When that happens, it's good just to take a little spiritual inventory. Say, okay, God, I know that that old life thing that I keep thinking about, is that it's gone. It's dead and gone. And God, I died to it and you died for it. Let's do something new. God, I'm asking you to be real with me right now in this moment so that the next day doesn't look like today. And so the next day after that doesn't look like tomorrow. You look for something new and it changes your whole perspective. Some of us, I believe, are ready for that change. Some of us are very ready to, to have that change in perspective. Some of us may not even know which way is up. And we've been wondering for such a long time. We don't even know which way is home at this point. We're just, we're just aimlessly doing life. Listen, today is a day that you can understand the blessing of God and his provision for you in maybe a brand new way. I'm going to ask if you'd stand up and bow your head and close your eyes. And remember, there's nothing magical about that. That just keeps us focused on what God has for us. And I want you to be so focused right now. If you're, if you're somebody that says, you know what, I am, I am dry, I am, and I've been wandering the desert for a long time, then this morning is a chance for you to be refreshed and to be fed. 
You're somebody who says, you know what, I've been living okay. I've been doing things all right. I, I just need to stay focused in this morning zone moment for you to, to kind of reconnect or maybe even recommit to say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm good now and I want to stay good. God, continue to do something new in me. Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.